We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, working less for more and the future of work not as usual. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So what are we doing I've seen a lot of interesting stories about companies considering whether or not they want to stay with big techs. Nike, for instance, is getting off Amazon to sell directly to the customer. And there was another article where Condé Nast is trying to figure out whether Apple News is really working for them. And we know that New York Times have not signed up to Apple News as well. So I think these are all stories that show that if your brand is big enough, you can resist the power of big tech to own the customer relationship. Yeah, There was another interesting headline that told us that the world is seemingly running out of sand. Yeah, so that ties in with the bigger climate change resource security story and it is incidentally also one about Australian ingenuity because apparently we're selling a lot of sand to desert countries. I think we should keep this one and come back to it because you know the world running out of sand is a good story. And the background is of course that it's used in concrete and it needs a particular sand that's coming from under the water, not sand shaped by wind. So desert sand can't be used in construction. But apparently we're using so much that we're running out. So that's no good. But we've seen a lot of stories this week about work. There was one in Forbes telling us that we'd better be ready to rethink the meaning of work. Things are changing really fast. And there was the one in Inc. that was suggesting that companies are wrong about the eight-hour workday. There's one from the Brookings Institute that has been picked up in other outlets that makes a valid point. In the future of work, what we forget often is the workers themselves and their perspective. So it's often a very abstract discussion. But you know, the interesting thing about all of these stories is that it seems to be the future of work, Mm. not as usual. All these stories are actually about the future of work. But they're not like we normally discuss the future of work. Like there's a lot of these stories, automation from AI and robots will displace workers and lead to job losses. And famously, there's the 47% that is being bandied about in every other news article. Yep, that based on the famous Oxford Frey and Osborne's paper from 2013 that really found that 47% of occupation were at high risk of being automated and that's being yeah, picked we've up done this before, over and right? over again. Yeah, yeah, and, and this has been rightly criticized for its methodology, that it focuses on entire jobs. And actually, you know, the main point is that it's been misappropriated in the media as well. 
But that hasn't really stopped the media for the past few years talking about the robo-apocalypse, talking about robots coming for our jobs. They're talking about large numbers of workers being displaced. Alongside the other big narrative, the hype narrative that we've also discussed at length, where technology will solve everything from inequality to climate change to cancer, yeah. we'll all be better off. And then there could be the comeback which says, you know, sure, there's going to be jobs lost. But every new wave of technology also creates new jobs that we can't foresee. But the point is, it's a completely quantitative argument, right? Jobs lost, jobs gained, maybe, you know, not, not enough skills of this kind. So you need to retrain workers into other jobs. So it's always at that level. But if you look at these two stories this week, they're really about the future of work, not as usual. So talking about four-day work weeks and talking about worker voices. So how about we do a special today and just try to look at the future of work, but not as usual. Yeah, not how much work there is and how many jobs, but what does it actually mean for work itself? How is work itself changing qualitatively? All right, then. Sandra, what happened in the future this week? Our first story comes from Inc. and it's titled Research Suggests Companies Are Wrong About the 8-Hour Workday. Here's how to prepare for flexible schedules. The story reports on Microsoft Japan and Microsoft Japan recently announced the results of its four-day workweek experiment. They had over 2,000 employees who got to take every Friday off. The program was called Work-Life Choice Challenge. And what Microsoft did was to shut down its offices every Friday in August and give everyone an extra day off each week. Turns out there was a 40% increase in productivity. 40%. Not to mention that, of course, the company saved on other things, things like electricity by shutting down for one day a week. And the initiative was started in Japan, especially in the context of the culture of overwork that you have in Japan. We've discussed this previously on this podcast when we discussed hashtag 996. So the idea of working from nine to nine, six days a week in China, and this being a widespread practice, especially at tech companies. But in the example of Microsoft, the way in which they suggested to workers to compensate for the reduced working hours is to actually spend less time on emails and less time in meetings. So for them, the reduction in total work hours or work days in the week was a chance to rethink some of the things that we know are not necessarily driving productivity in the workplace, which is email and meetings. So at the same time, a wake-up call to think about the way in which you work and the quality of the work that you do. And Microsoft will conduct another experiment in Japan later in this year. They're also asking some other companies to join and they're asking workers themselves to join in and try to come up with new ideas to improve work-life balance or to improve work efficiency in those four days. And while it's interesting to see that some companies are actually embarking on real-life experiments and there have been others, a New Zealand law firm a little while back went to a 30-hour work week um, that was reported in the New York Times, which turned out to work quite well. We also know from research that there's a strong correlation between working less hours and performance. So a study in the American Journal of Epidemiology found that those who work 
55 hours per week performed worse on certain mental tasks than those who worked 40 hours a week. And another study at Florida State Universities into top performers in sports, entertainment and chess discovered that those who were the best performers normally practiced in very short, uninterrupted sessions, meaning that short bursts of really concentrated works usually leads to better performance than just spending hours and hours doing what you do. And these were reported in another article in Vox that we're going to put in the show notes. So the question then is, and it was actually the title of a New York Times article, what if you had a four-day work week? Why don't you? The question is, if we're seeing these gains in productivity and if we know there is research that says that we might be better off working four days a week, why don't we go to this? And there's been really a long tradition of people predicting the four-day work week or even less. John Maynard Keynes famously predicted that by 2030, which is not that far off now, we would all be working 15 hours a week. Nixon famously predicted that we would work less. Businesses and governments have really been experimenting with this for quite a few years now. But still, why is it taking so long? Yeah, and looking at our own workloads here, it's not 15 hours a week, right? So I think inertia, so that's one thing. The fact that it's pretty much ingrained in the culture that working long hours is seen to be a sign of vigor and it's a good thing to do. And there's also certain professions where you're basically being paid to deliver a job. So many professional service firms, consultancies, they work at the client side, so leaving early would be seen to be not professional. So there's certain incentives in the system that incentivize spending long hours at work, which would have to be done away with. So some of these barriers are indeed corporate or institutional barriers. You can't have one company and the other company is not moving. There is also all the stuff that goes around work, children going to school and needing to be picked up and so on and so forth. Some aspects are really cultural, as we've discussed before, 996 and this pride in working long hours and in being busy for a very long time. But how have we done it previously? Because... People invented the six-day work week and then we invented the weekend, right? So we ended up in this place of 40 hours and five days, which seems to have stuck around for a long time. So if we've done it previously, what was different then? Well, previously, and by previously we mean 100 years ago, Previously, we've done it through companies, actually individual companies making the move, not the government mandating things. And what's often cited as the first example, and it's mentioned in the New York Times article as well, a New England mill that expanded the one-day weekend that used to be the Sunday, the one-day weekend to two days to accommodate its Jewish workers. So the Saturday, the Sabbath was going to be a free day as well. So now we had the weekend. And about 20 years later, Ford famously followed suit and instituted the five-day work week for the entire Ford Motor Corporation and then popularized the idea which was then taken up by a number of other companies. Yeah, so was Ford in a position to do this because they were just massively big? We've discussed previously, right, the big companies like the big stock market companies, the tech companies, they're big in dollar value, but they're not actually big in the number of people that they employ. So if any one of those did this, it might have a signaling effect, but it wouldn't have that much an effect on the you know, number of people who would. Well, 
you would need someone like Walmart to do it with, I Hmm. think it's over 2 million employees. That would send a strong signal. And I think there are a number of other cases where industries that employ a large number of people are making the change. Shake Shack in the US, for instance, if you're thinking about restaurants and fast food, trying out the four-day work week in some of its stores. And that is a significant change because if you're making shakes and burgers, it's not like you can reduce the time you spend on your emails or you can reduce your meeting time. So it is the company itself that has to introduce that kind of flexibility and really fundamentally change the way they think about working hours. But let's not lose sight of why we're looking at the stories. We decided to look at these stories because they were an interesting, different way to think about the future of work. Because they're about the quality of work and the reconfiguring of work itself, not just an argument about jobs lost, jobs gained, but really to look at what does it actually mean for doing work and for the people involved, which brings us to our second story, which comes from brookings.com. This is the outlet of the Brookings Institute. So the Brookings Institution is a non-profit. Did I say it wrong? No, you're always right. So the Brookings <laughs> Institution is a non-profit public policy organization. They're out of Washington, D.C. And what they do is they try to conduct in-depth research that leads to new ideas or ways to solve problems that society is facing, not only at the local level, but more national and global issues. They work with hundreds of researchers from around the world. And in the case of this article, it's actually a Stanford study that they're reporting on. So the article makes the point that in the conversations around the future of work, the voice of the people most affected, the workers, is never actually heard. And that has two dimensions. One is whose voice is being represented in these discussions. And what is the role of the workers in the discussions about the future of work? So on the one hand, the article makes the point that oftentimes we very narrowly have this image of the white male office worker or blue-collar worker being displaced. So other groups such as women or minorities that are often the most vulnerable under this automation argument are not really included in the discussions. But that's not the part of the argument that we want to highlight. The other one is the point that workers actually lack agency in shaping the direction of these automation technologies and how it shapes the work in ways in which technologies complement humans in the workplace. And this takes us back actually to why we picked these two stories for today. Because as we mentioned in the beginning, the future of work is most often discussed in quantitative terms, the number of jobs that will be disappearing, the number of tasks that will be replaced, the types of industries that will be affected. These two stories highlighted a qualitative side to the argument. What will work be like? Who will have a say in this? But it turns out, even in this conversation, the best case scenario, we talk about augmentation, about how the lives of these workers will be different when you add technology in the mix. And we talk about augmenting their work with that technology. Yeah, but augmentation, the picture that we often have is that rather than, say, displacing the doctor with the algorithm that can diagnose diseases, we say, oh, but wouldn't it be better if the doctor had this technology as a tool and the two together augmented would do a much better job and provide much better care for patients. And yes, we might ultimately need a few less doctors, but the idea is that we get this better outcome, better quality. But what we're forgetting here is that this augmentation also has a dark side. 
But we want to remind you and highlight a few stories that we've done previously that point to changes in work practices that affect the quality of work itself and the way in which work is experienced. Two months ago, we discussed a story by the vice president of Kickstarter who was talking about how as the company grew, they had to automate the approval of the projects that were submitted for crowdfunding on Kickstarter. And whilst in the beginning, when it was people reviewing all the projects, there were easy wins, there were these cases where people just achieved their goal really, really quickly, managed to raise 10 times as much money as they had wanted, and people had a sense of achievement. Now the algorithm was actually taking care of all the easy wins, and the employees were left with the really difficult cases, the ones that had smaller chances of success or where they were unsure whether they complied with Kickstarter's terms and services. So there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of complexity and a lot of dissatisfaction around working on these cases. And while this complies with the general narrative that, you know, when we automate parts of the work, then the humans can concentrate on the more complex cases, it also turns out that those complex cases are more stressful and they're much less enjoyable. And so the work satisfaction and the quality of work and workplaces actually deteriorated off the back of the automation. And of course, you could make this argument similarly for call centers and a lot of other industries where you would get the exact same results. So this automation of quick wins in this case had negative outcomes. And the second story we want to highlight is that of Uber and other business models and work practices where an algorithm organizes the work of a group of people. We discussed this on the podcast more than two years ago, and it was a story about Uber drivers secretly colluding to cause price surges. So they would discuss on WhatsApp to go to an area. They would all turn their Uber apps off, wait for the price surge, and then turn it on and take advantage of that price surge. And there was research we discussed at that time that was looking at how the driver's behavior was actually a response to being managed by an algorithm to having no agency over their work. Yes, and to be exposed to an environment of surveillance, which can be immensely stressful. And we've seen a couple more articles in both the Financial Times and the New York Times, both with the same title, when an algorithm is your boss, which have discussed what it feels like and is like when humans are being subjected to these algorithms that make decisions about what they can and can't do. A third story we could tell here is one that came up a couple of weeks ago, talking about doctors' experience with a new patient's record system software. This was reported in the New York Times, and it reported on how the software actually amplified the insecurities that come with being a doctor as the system was constantly reminding the doctors about their deficiencies, things that they hadn't filled out or data that they hadn't provided yet on cases or checkboxes that weren't worked out. And the interesting thing here is that we're often told that the automation of the routine and admin aspects of certain jobs, such as in education, in the creative industries, and indeed in the health and medical professions, will free up those professionals to actually focus on their core skills, on their creative work, on their diagnostic work. What we see here is that a lot of the time, because of the way in which these systems formalize work as a set of discrete tasks, they actually reduce the degrees of freedom and 
create certain instances where only certain ways of performing a task are allowed. And they're also very hungry for data. So people end up being governed by these systems rather than being freed up to be the professionals that they're supposed to be. So rather than things happening on the doctor's terms, the experience is had in the product's voice, so to speak. Yeah, so it's on the system's terms, not on the doctor's terms. And this leads us straight to a fourth point, which is that a lot of the time the automation of uh, back office uh, processes creates more busy work, hidden work, where the system requires data input or where certain routine tasks are automated, but anything that sort of falls only slightly outside of the norm will create more work than previously before automation had been brought in. And there's also one last story we wanted to highlight, and that again has to do with the quality of work that results when we think about automation and augmentation. And we've discussed this on the podcast about two and a half years ago when we talked about the legal industry being quite slow to adopt technology, but there being forays into the legal industry through automating discovery or documents review, the types of tasks that junior associates would do in a law firm. And while in isolation, you might look at this work and say, this is a bit shit because it's just repetitive and it's tedious. And wouldn't it be a great idea to use algorithms to sift through this data and automate this? It comes at a cost. And yes, it absolutely is a good thing to automate this sort of work, but the cost is actually quite high as those junior lawyers would sit on larger teams with more experienced lawyers and this would form part of their apprenticeship into the profession. So they would gain expertise by being around on big projects and doing this kind of work. Those pathways to the profession are now being radically challenged through automation. And this points to a general argument where expertise is acquired in any case in a stage-wise process where you engage in more routine work and then more complex work and then you build up your judgment expertise to then at some point become an expert in your field. If we automate away that lower end of tasks and people can't engage in these tasks, we actually foreclose certain established pathways by which people learn their way into the higher value tasks that are now being left after automation. So in other words, you need to learn to drive a car in the first place to then become a race car driver. So in the end, maybe what we need is a different conversation about the future of work. Rather than having discussions about the types of tasks and the types of jobs that will be automated and their number, which will only lead you to a conversation about the future of work and ways in which you need to reskill workers, having a much more nuanced conversation around the quality of work, which then can lead you to conversations around work design, work satisfaction, and including the people who are affected by changes to work through automation in the conversation to actually shape workplaces in which people want to work and that work from, say, a skills progression point of view and that allow professionals to be professionals rather than be governed by algorithms, which comes at the expense of the quality of work in the end. And what's more, it also allows you to open up all the other conversations about work that have to do with reimagining safety nets for workers or the ways in which workers can organize. 
or how to best think about structuring how and when work happens to begin with. And here's a title for a paper someone could write, augmented by bots, reframing the automation and future of work debate around quality. And that's all we have time for today. See you soon. On the future. Next week. This week. Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was the future this week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.